One of the most challenging issues an investor can get to, if you get to the point where you're considering working with an investment advisor, is where do you even start? How do you pick someone that possibly for decades you're gonna be relying upon to guide you through uh, or along your financial journey? This is someone you're gonna to have to trust, uh, to be competent, to act in your best interest, in this video today, that's what we're gonna focus on. We're gonna look at um, what is an investment advisor and look at the different types of advisors you may choose to work with. Why might you use one? What exactly do investment advisors do? Uh, big question, how do you find one once you've decided you want one? Some questions that you might ask to uh, ensure that you're on the same page with an advisor. And ultimately, how much is it going to cost you? How much are you gonna pay? Those are the issues that we're gonna be covering in today's video. Hope you stick around. There seems to be a never-ending debate on should you work with a professional to help you manage your investment portfolio? And there's two major trains of thought. One is, yes, these people are trained professionals and they can help me achieve my goals better than just doing it myself. There is a very strong contingent on the DIY side that says, why would you pay for advice when Everything's available on the internet. You can do this yourself and save you the cost of, of you know, hiring a professional. There's one big elephant in the room that I'm going to address right out of the gate here and hopefully put this behind us. You're going to hear over and over in this debate, advisors can't even beat the index or the advisors can't even compete with the index. So if you're paying them a fee, what's the point when you can just buy the S&P 500 or buy the TSX, you'll come out further ahead few things to address here. First of all, a human being is not an index. So if you have the S&P 500 or the TSX or the NASDAQ, <clears throat> they are a 100% equity portfolio. And it's not realistic to compare the performance of those, of those indices to the real life of a human being. Uh, the S&P 500 doesn't have any objectives that uh, are any goals that they need to meet. They're not going to buy a house one day or uh, the NASDAQ isn't going to retire and look at ways of passing down their estate properly from one generation to the next. Uh, the goal of many investors isn't to beat the index, isn't even to match the index. Everybody has uh, their own uh, rate of return that they need to achieve to meet their objectives. So I don't think it's realistic to use that as the number one qualifier. Now, in most clients, in most relationships, you're going to set an, uh, a target. You're going to say, uh, here I am today, here's where I wanna be, and what rate of return do I need to achieve to get there? Now, in some cases, if you have a lot of money to start with, it could be a very low rate of return. In other cases, if um, you are you know, have a lot of catching up to do, you could set that target pretty high. That would be realistic to compare your, uh, your personal index, your personal goals against the performance uh, that an advisor can help you with. But to flat out just compare it to one of the major indices um, just isn't, uh, isn't practical and it isn't real life. Uh, when I was working with clients, I had a whole range of uh, different types of clients. I had younger clients who were more aggressive building their portfolio. I worked predominantly with older clients who maybe had achieved wealth their goal wasn't to um, get stellar returns. Their goal was to preserve their wealth and to protect and to provide them with a cash flow. Ultimately, what you need to determine in this base, uh, in, in this case of whether you should work with an advisor or not, is um, what can they do to help you achieve your goals, independent of everything else. 
There are tangible benefits that you can measure. For example, if you said, I need 5% rate of return to accomplish my retirement goals, then that will be the benchmark. And you can absolutely look back in a year or in three years or in five years and say, has this portfolio that's being managed for me achieved those goals? It doesn't matter um, if it's above or below another index, if that's what you're looking for. Um, so from that perspective, there are tangible benefits. There are also though a lot of intangible benefits that an advisor can bring to the table. These are really important. The biggest one I think is that a, a, an experienced advisor can help you avoid big mistakes. And we're, we're living right now still going through this, uh, the pandemic, uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And if we think back to just over a year ago, we think back to March of 2020, there were a lot of mistakes that were made uh, when the markets initially corrected. And then we've had a very strong recovery uh, since then. I know that a lot of advisors who didn't have proper guidance uh, would have bailed out of the markets and uh, you know missed out on the recovery. Those are the types of things uh, that would be a mistake, I would say, in this in uh, in this example for most people. That would be an example of where an advisor, uh, someone to, as a sounding board, someone to reflect back with, can um, can help you out there. Not everybody wants to do it yourself. There's lots of reasons that people. Maybe you're busy running a business. Maybe you're retired and uh, you uh, vacation quite a bit under normal circumstances. Maybe you just don't feel you have the ability or the skills to do that. So the fact that you can do it yourself doesn't mean that a lot of people or everybody wants to. Having someone on your side can help you remove fears and anxieties. And as you get older, this may be difficult for some younger viewers to understand, but as you get older, having your nest egg protected, erring or protecting on the downside becomes a much bigger issue as you're, uh, you're perhaps you're retired, your cash flow has stopped, you're not earning anything from a job anymore. So all you have to live on is maybe some government pension benefits and also your portfolio. The fear... Um, or the anxiety that comes about from possibly losing that and that security um, is is actually very large in people's uh, minds and working with a qualified professional can really help you sort of calm, uh, go through this with, with a more of a calm attitude. Um, I would just call that peace of mind. You know, there's, um, there's something to be said for just having someone on your side who you can have, have trust and you can have faith in uh, who will guide you through that process. I learned this vividly when I retired earlier this year. And as I visited or, you know, as I spoke with uh, each of my clients uh, to advise them that I was making this change in my life, I was shocked at how much, um, how much these people relied on me and what peace of mind I provided to them. I mean, I know that that's the role of an advisor and uh, I always felt that was something that I, I was trying to achieve, but I had no... Um, idea really of the depth of that. And so I can speak firsthand to the peace of mind, the comfort that, a, that an advisor can bring uh, to a client. So those are some of the things to consider as to uh, what uh, an advisor can bring as, you're, as you are um, uh, making your decision as to whether to work with an advisor. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in, in a few minutes as well. Let's uh, move on now to what is the definition of an advisor. And this might seem pretty simple, but the term advisor uh, is very widely used. You know, you have investment advisor, financial advisor, um, you have uh, financial planner, investment planner. There's so many terms. In fact, I recently read on one of the industry websites that there's about 65 different titles that are in use today, mostly unregulated. 
Uh, most of the provinces um, don't have official regulations related to titles. Now there is registration that we're going to talk about here in a second, but if people can kind of call themselves whatever they want, and it's up to the investor to, to dig a little bit deeper and see exactly what these people do and what they can offer. This video today, I'm going to focus on investment advisors. Even then, there's going to be a few different terms I'm going to throw around. Uh, but, you know, this is an investing channel uh, and we're not going to talk about a whole bunch of other types that uh, are important. But for the purposes of what we're doing today, uh, we're going to look at an investment advisor. I'm going to talk about two main types. Uh, I'm going to use the term investment advisor here and I'll probably just use advisor as we go through here. Um, an investment advisor, as the name implies, focuses on managing your investments. So whether that's recommending portfolios or investments for you, whether that's actually um, taking full control in a discretionary account and doing everything on your behalf. The focus is on investments. Now, another term is financial planner. A financial planner has a wider scope. So they may be involved in looking after your investments, but they're also going to cover off a lot of other things that aren't directly related to investment. Many advisors, in fact, I would say probably most, um, are, do both. Uh, through most of my career, I was a licensed investment advisor. I was also a certified financial planner. So it's very common in the industry because there's so much overlap. And when you're having discussions with your clients, um, there's there's both of those sides of investing or, or financial management that you need to address. Um, probably someone that you're working with or might be considering working with um, will be both uh, an advisor, an investment advisor and a financial planner. That's something to uh, consider. There's also a term that the industry uses called dual licensed. and. What a dual license is, it's very common that an investment advisor may also be an insurance representative. So they may be licensed to, um, to do both. I'm not a big fan of uh, a, a sort of a jack of all trades. Um, I think it's okay if you have an investment advisor who is insurance licensed, but their focus is on investments and they can have those general discussions with clients. And if it's a very, very simple case, they can uh, perhaps sell you a product to solve an insurance need. But when you get into more complicated insurance um, issues, I believe that you want to work with an insurance specialist. And most advisors have uh, relationships with people who do focus more on the insurance side of things, um, even if they are licensed in insurance. On the flip side of that, you have insurance advisors whose main focus is managing um, the insurance or the risk management for their clients, but they are also investment uh, licensed. And uh, again, there's a lot of overlap. So quite likely someone who has insurance needs is also going to have needs for uh, for some investing help as well. Well, I uh, same thing. I would say that if the person who's insurance for license, uh, insurance licensed, um, I, if they don't focus on the investment side of thing, I would hope that they would, uh, in many cases, refer you to uh, someone who spends their whole day uh, focusing on investments. I prefer that, uh, that referral uh, relationship. If you find someone and you feel comfortable that they have, you know, they're able to cover everything for you, uh, that's okay too. But just be aware um, that most insurance representatives who also invest, focus on insurance, do a little bit of investing. Most investment advisors um, focus on investing, do a little bit of insurance. And, and I think each of these uh, areas of your financial world is too important to just absolutely um, rely on one person for everything. That's kind of an overview of what you can expect when you start this journey down looking for an investment advisor. I'm going to talk right now about different categories of licensing, and this is really important. There's, I, I talked about having so many different registration, or sorry, so many different titles out there, and it can be very confusing. The, uh, if you're going to ad give investment advice in Canada, you need to be registered if you're actually going to manage portfolios with uh, the, what's called the 
the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. It's known as IROC. And there's a big difference between a title that you have and what your registration, uh, you know, the, the, the licensing that you have, the registration uh, means much more than just the title. It dictates what types of services and products you're able to use when you're working with your clients. There are two main categories of investment advisors. I'm going to try and keep this straightforward and simple. There's registered representative and there's investment representative. And they're two different things, although they sound very similar. A registered representative or RR is licensed to make trades, but also to provide advice to clients. An investment representative, on the other hand, they are too are licensed to make trades, but they're not licensed to give advice. The most common scenario you're going to be working, uh, you're going to find is an RR, a uh, registered representative working uh, with uh, a team and some of the assistants will probably possibly be IRs, which mean if you called up and said, I want to make a trade, they can process that trade on your behalf. But if you called up and said, you know, should I buy some shares of Royal Bank? They're not licensed to give you that advice. That advice has to come directly from the RR or from the registered representative themselves. So I hope that kind of clarifies from a top level, the two main types of people that you may work with. Now, when you go beneath that, each of those has certain products that they're qualified or licensed to work with. You can, and I'm just going to go, uh, because they're, they're the same, I'm just going to focus on registered representatives, so RRs right now. You can work with an RR who is licensed to deal with mutual funds only. That's very common. If you're, uh, if you're uh, looking just to buy mutual funds, that's what you need, a registered representative mutual fund licensed. The next level, I would say, is you uh, can have an RR who's licensed to deal with mutual funds and also securities. That's sort of the next step. Uh, securities being stocks, bonds, preferred shares, that type of thing. So uh, there's a wide range of securities that also encompasses mutual funds at that level. You can also have uh, um, RRs who are licensed to trade in options or to provide options strategies to their clients. Options are puts, calls, um, you know, different strategies that you can use with those, what are called derivatives. All RRs cannot uh, trade in options. You have to have special uh, training, special courses and accreditations to, to, um, to uh, be able to do that, but it all falls under the same RR category. Uh, same thing with futures contracts and futures contract options. Much They fall into the derivatives category as well, but there's special trainings uh, that need to be applicable uh, for that category. So all RRs are not the same, but there's different levels of services. So it depends on what you want. If you say, I just want to build a portfolio of mutual funds, that's simple. All RRs will be able to help you in that respect. But if you say, I want to add individual securities, uh, stocks, bonds, if I want to be able to trade in options, then you have to look for a specific um, registrant who has the capability of providing those services as well. On the same topic, you have portfolio managers and you have associate portfolio managers. And they have much the similar qualifications as the RRs. The difference is this, with an RR, so with the standard registered um, representative, they are licensed to advise you on uh, invest on your portfolio, whether to buy, whether to sell stocks, but ultimately they need to get your approval. So they make the recommendations that are suitable for you, but there has to be verbal confirmation before they're able to make those trades. A portfolio manager, on the other hand, you set up a um, uh, what's called an investment policy statement where you provide a roadmap or parameters under which you approve them 
to manage your portfolio. And then they can go ahead and do that without verifying or without getting permission on each trade to do that. So an RR can give you advice. And you know, in many cases, clients accept that advice. That's why you pay the person for their expertise. Um, a PM, a portfolio manager, can go ahead and make those changes without um, having to confirm uh, every trade with you. Just sort of to recap, when you're looking for an advisor, you wanna look at how they're registered depending on what types of services that you are looking to uh, to uh, to use. And you may not even know, but that could come about uh, in a discussion as to when you lay out your plans, uh, getting a better sense of what type of advisor you're gonna be actually working with. I wanna talk for a moment about financial planning because it is part of the bigger picture and I did touch on it earlier. There are a ton of different um, titles uh, for financial planners and, and I, Quebec, I think, uh, actually has a regulation around the, the use of the term. I believe Saskatchewan either does or soon will have reg, uh, le legislation around the term. And I know much of the other provinces are, are moving in that direction. So you can't just say I'm a financial planner unless you have specific qualifications. I think you do want to look for someone with qualifications, with some accreditations, if you're looking to incorporate a financial planner in your, in your overall plans. I would say sort of the benchmark you want to look for is CFP or Certified Financial Planner. This is sort of a global standard. And I, I think that if you, um, if at a minimum, I would almost say that the person you're working with is a CFP, then that's, uh, you can have comfort that they are actually qualified to dispense financial planning advice. In, in lieu of that, um, I would maybe dig a little bit deeper into what, what qualifications they actually have. In Quebec, there's a, a, a they, there's the CFP. I don't think is applicable in Quebec, but they have their equivalent. Um, it's PL dot FIN dot. That's the abbreviation. And forgive me for my French here. I don't speak French, but I believe it stands for, or at least I know what it stands for. I believe it's pronounced uh, Planificateur Financiel. I think that's how you would say it, and it's equivalent of our Certified Financial Planner um, in in uh, the rest of the country. The reason I think it's important that you have someone who does have these credentials is that um, they, they are important because things like, for example, if you have an accreditation and you belong to an organization that issues that, things like continuing education um, are, are uh, things that you agree to continue with. And in fact, to keep your license, you need to, uh, to continue a minimum, typically every year, um, or there's some, in some cases, there's a cycle of two or three years where you would complete X number of hours within that time. I think that's really important. The industry changes a lot. And certainly since I got in the industry, uh, you know, 25 or so years ago, um, it has changed so much that if you were just licensed at one point and that's just static and, and you continue to work without keeping yourself up to date, you would be doing a, a big disservice to your clients. So that's one of the things that if you do belong to an organization, you're obligated to do. Uh, they also have min minimum proficiency standards. And so there is an overseer of, of your operation. And I think that's important. Another consideration is uh, along the same lines, you're obliged, you agree to follow a code of ethics and uh, without that uh, governing body looking at you, I mean, there are laws you have to follow, but from an ethical perspective, uh, it's a little bit looser. I think that's really important and to be reminded of what those ethics are and keep you focused on, on acting in your client's best interest. You also typically have access to a number of resources. So whether they're you know conferences you can go to, whether they're online you know webinars, there's training, uh, best practices. Overall, if you have shown a dedication that this is a this career is important enough to you that you're going to put in the hours behind the scenes, I think that's very um, very valuable to the end user to the client. That said, there are no guarantees. I mean, if you have an irresponsible, uh, bad advisor. 
even if they are members of all kinds of associations, it doesn't mean that they're going to be uh, you know, stellar advisors and work in your best interest. So it's a starting point, but um, as we're going to talk about it in a few minutes, you know, actually getting to meet people and the things you're going to look for, um, it's something that uh, I think is a, is a, a great base, if nothing else, that you're going, going to want to look for as you search for your advisor. When it comes to what types of firms you can work with, there's all kinds, right from the big banks, the big insurance companies, they certainly all have wealth management divisions. They'd be happy to take your accounts and, and manage your investments and provide advice there. It goes right down to sort of the mom and pa shops or the one man shops. And you know, for most of my career, I worked uh, as a solo practitioner. So I worked in my office with a support team and um, uh, that's worked quite well for me. There are, there are differences uh, it comes down to what you're comfortable with. A couple of key things that you might want to consider. It depends in some respects to how complicated your situation is. If you have a very, very complicated situation, um, you may want to consider working more uh, or looking more towards working with one of the big banks that have a, a, a lot of uh, a depth of resources. I guess you could say they may have teams, they may have um, uh, state planning experts that you can that you can work alongside. If, you're, if, you're, um, if your issues are, are much more complicated. If you're working with an individual or an independent practitioner, my experience and you know the, the, what I've heard uh, from talking with clients over the years is you generally get a much more personal experience. And um, I, I mean, I, I heard that often from I took, clients I took on where they really liked the one-on-one. So when you're dealing with, um, an, you know, when you're dealing with an office, you're dealing with the lead person all the time. Uh, and you're not maybe passed around amongst a team. So there's pros and cons to both of those uh, scenarios. I, I think it does come down, if you find the right person and it's a, a smaller operation, uh, that's perfectly fine. Um, if you're more comfortable having the depth of a big organization like a, a bank behind you, that's fine as well. That's kind of an overview of the different licenses that you could look for as an advisor and where you might go um, to, uh, to find that advisor. I'm going to briefly, uh, briefly touch on and what I, what I kind of started with is, you know, why might you have an advisor and this debate of do they actually add value? And of course, if you're going to pay money, you should be receiving value. I'm going to keep this relatively short, but a lot of academic reports show that advisors do actually add value to their clients. And I'll just repeat very quickly. It doesn't mean you're going to uh, have a rate of return that's higher than the NASDAQ. That's not the objective for most clients. There is a, a fairly recent report that I read. I'm going to put a link uh, to it in the in the uh, description below uh, by a, an investment company. So take everything with a grain of salt, of course. But it's post-COVID, so it gives some examples of what we what we're going through or what we've gone through in the last year or so of the value beyond just investing that in an investment uh, advisor can help you with. The decision to work with an advisor can be complicated to start with, and then once you decide I want to proceed it becomes even more complicated. A couple of obvious examples are these. Depending on whether you need an advisor and who you'll work with will depend on the size of your account. If you have a very small account, uh, you could argue that there's less importance or less need to work directly with an advisor. Um, it may be even hard to find an advisor um, who is willing to take you on. I mean, to be blunt, if you have you know $1,000 or $5,000 that you're starting with, um, you're not going to find a lot of um, experienced, established advisors who are going to uh, want to take you on as a client just because you know they're they're already managing a book of business for the most part. And so as, as blunt as that may sound, 
you may have a challenge finding someone to even manage uh, with ma manage your investments. Now, on the other side of that, if you already have a large portfolio, so imagine that you're, say, closer to retirement or maybe in retirement and you've amassed your nest egg, you're certainly going to be finding more advisors willing to take you on as a client. I would also say that the importance of working with someone uh, increases at that point as well. Uh, the, the risks of making major mistakes at that point of your lifespan, of your investing lifespan, uh, are much greater. And uh, I think the services, the comfort that an advisor can bring to the table uh, takes on much more of a, an importance at that point. Also, your life stage. If you're younger, you again, you may not feel the need. You're, you're probably more confident in your abilities. Uh, you know, you're more astute at uh, learning things online, for example. And and you may feel I don't need an advisor to help me with this. I'm just going to learn online and manage my portfolio myself, and I'll probably do better. That's going to be the thought process. Also, again, going back to the the uh, the previous point, is the risks, the downside risks are much less when you're 20 or 25 or 30. Um, of if you make a mistake. Uh, you know, if you have to start over, well, you still have a lot of runway ahead of you. Mind you, or as opposed to if you're older, then um, you may, uh, you, you know, the, again, sort of you, you may have uh, established this, um, this, the comfort level that you're, the lifestyle that you're accustomed to, and you don't want to jeopardize that. So, you know, bringing in some competent help will help you in that regard as well. A few other reasons that uh, you may want to consider are the value that an advisor can bring. Something obvious that comes to my mind is uh, planning. Investing isn't just picking stocks and bonds, or well, actually investing proper is, but um, you have to do that in a bigger context. So uh, you may want to have an, an actual plan. And very commonly, and I see comments on our channel all the time, I'm 10 years away from retirement. Uh, you know, how should I invest my portfolio? Or I'm going to be retiring soon. Uh, how do I adjust my portfolio to manage through retirement? So that that um, the, the retirement planning process um, factors into this decision as well, which isn't as relevant for a 25 year old. Also, if you have a family, it's very common that uh, you know more and more offices today are working with intergenerational uh, clients. So you have uh, you know typically mom and dad with the, the younger children or you may have uh, you know f children, clients in their 40s and 50s who are dealing uh, are working with their parents and ensuring that you can pass wealth from one generation on to the next. It isn't as simple as it seems well it seems probably pretty complicated and it actually is when you start factoring in things like um, how do you do this with the most tax efficient uh, in, in the most tax efficient manner um, these are considerations that a younger person might not have uh, but certainly an older wealthier person you know having money is great but it does uh, add some complications to the scenario as well that um, it may be uh, very well worth uh, your your time your money to get some professional help in that regard uh, bottom line as I come back to it uh, just the peace of mind a lot of clients have knowing that they are in good hands and, and protected and brings a lot of value to the table and each person decides whether it's worth them spending um, money to uh, to get that help I'm going to move on now to what actually do advisors do? And this may seem obvious, but there's a, there's a difference between an investment advisor and a financial planner. Many can do both. In fact, um, I, I, most of my, as I touched on earlier, I was both an investment advisor and a financial planner when I was working in the industry. Most of my counterparts that I got to know over, over the years um, were as well. So there is, um, there's a crossover there but there's very specific needs that um, are either you know that that cross over and and 
uh, are relative, are relevant to either to both investing and financial planning. And there's a couple that I'm going to strip out that are separate. I'm just going to start with um, things that are that are sort of um, across both of those spectrums. So whether you're working on an investment portfolio or whether you're working on a financial plan, certain things you're going to need to do. You're going to need to um, assess your current situation. So you're going to need to take a snapshot of where you are today. And that entails a bit of upfront work uh, on your part. I always think, um, you know, going and working with an investment advisor or a financial planner isn't one-sided. Um, you need input from the advisor. You need input from the client as well. And, and the more input both of those parties bring to the table, the more effective this is going to be. So there's a fair bit of groundwork getting uh, this relationship started by assessing your current situation and then assessing what your needs are. Uh, it's one thing to say, well, here, here's my net worth. This is where I'm at today. But what are your needs, uh, either now or on an ongoing basis? And that could be family related, it could be business related, it could be, you know, there's a myriad of things that this professional will help you identify and um, help you solidify that plan around there. Uh, once you've uh, sort of assessed what those needs are, you then sort of lay out a plan to determine or to uh, sort of focus in on what your goals and what your objectives are. Um, again, help, uh, getting help in that regard, I think is very important. Once all those are done, then you get to the, to the uh, part of the process where the advisor will uh, give you the advice on whether it's a product you need or whether it's a, a, you know, a solution of some nature that um, you need to do. So there's the implementation phase, I would call it, where you take this knowledge and you say, okay, now what are the steps I need to take to, to get this done? Once that is in place, there's a constant uh, revolving of uh, reviewing and updating. So setting up a financial plan or setting up an investment portfolio isn't a one-off and it's done. It, it requires to be, uh, to be properly uh, managed. It requires constant review, innovation, uh, whether that's annually or you know, if there's a life event that occurs, you may need that more frequently. Um, that's something that uh, always has to be factored in. And, and I touched on earlier how you're looking to set up a long-term relationship and having the fluidity in a relationship is really important because you're not, you know, five years later or 10 years later, you're not going back and starting with someone fresh who, um, you know, you're, you're, you're having to explain all of these goals and objectives again. Um, hopefully the account's well-documented, but just in case having one person is, um, you know, is, is a bonus in my, in my, uh, in my example. Now, specifically, so these are some crossover things, specifically when you're working with an investment advisor, well, as the name implies, they will be advising on your portfolio. So, uh, the, you know, their main focus is going to be managing your money. Uh, as I said earlier, if you're working with an RR, uh, a registered representative, they will make recommendations that are suitable to you. And then you will authorize them to implement those. If you're working with a portfolio manager, you will have done that, uh, that authorization ahead of time. Uh, no difference really in what they're going to do for you. It's just a matter of they can just do that without uh, connecting with you each occasion. Financial planners um, have, I would say, more of a holistic uh, view. They don't just look at the investment part of it. That will be part of the of the whole overall picture. But they're, um, as the name implies, they might prepare a financial plan for you. So this could be uh, a formal document, um, and there's all different types, from short documents to very long, complicated documents, depending on your circumstance. Um, but they'll prepare a financial plan specifically for you. They may review uh, review your insurance coverage. That's uh, you know risk management in your life is important, and so that's uh, a skill that they may be able to bring to the table. Things like cash flow needs, net worth needs, um, you know, budgeting, 
Uh, again, that's all part of this financial management. Uh, tax planning is usually part of that process as well. There's a bit of spillover there on the investment side as well, but if you're looking specifically at tax planning, retirement and estate planning, then you're gonna work, wanna work with a, um, in conjunction with your investment advisor, you're gonna wanna work with a financial planner or a, a specific uh, uh, estate planner if that's what your needs are. The bottom line on all of this information is that there are a wide range of needs that clients have and there's a wide range of services. To start with, um, your job, I guess, is to find out or to assess what your needs are. Then you start looking for the individual, the professional who can fulfill those needs, has the skill set to do what you need to do for them, and then, uh, you know, then you move on down that path. Hey everybody, it's Brandon here. I'd like to interrupt today's episode very briefly to remind you that if you're looking for more training in the Canadian stock market, don't hesitate to check out our Investing Academy. You can join our private membership group and get access to our top stock picks, trade calls, portfolio insights, and a variety of tools that are helping our members all across the country better their own investing journeys. All it takes is one great stock idea or tip, and that alone can cover years and years of your subscription to our membership group. If you're looking for some additional video training to broaden your knowledge and expand your understanding of the stock market in Canada, we do of course offer a fully video online training program where you can learn from the comfort of your home amongst a variety of students across the country. Both of these products can be found at www.theinvestingacademy.ca where you can sign up for them online or schedule a call with us to learn more. Now back to our scheduled episode. That brings me to, okay, how do you actually find one of these people? You know, you've gone through all the initial steps. You determine, yes, I do need someone. Um, how do you actually find these people? Um, you need to perform your due diligence. I don't think you would blindly want to uh, just, you know, look online or, um, you know, look in the phone book, uh, the yellow pages, if they still exist and, and, and find someone with a flashy ad or a nice website and just turn over your money to them. You want to, you want to make sure that you vet them, uh, your money and your financial security is just too important to, um, you know, just blindly go into something like this. I think a very good starting point, uh, believe it or not, is talk with your friends, talk with your family, talk with maybe some, uh, some coworkers that you trust. A lot of people do work with investment professionals and when it comes time for you to take that step, I think that's a really good starting point. If you have, uh, let's just say family, a family member, for example, who's worked with an advisor for a number of years and has a very good um, uh, comfort level, um, it's somewhere, you know, they can, they can uh, tell you the behind the scenes stories that might give you comfort or make you, you know, might make you decide to go in a different direction. But it's a really good place to, um, to start uh, your, your search. If you work with other professionals, such as accountants, you may uh, ask them for advice. There's most accountants work hand in hand with investment advisors and uh, and vice versa. So there's often uh, a good flow of information and some good starting points that you can have that way. Of course, you know, in 2021, you can always search online. There's always, um, uh, you know, a, a number of sources you can go to. And I'm going to talk about a couple of those here that you can use for your start. In most cases, I would suggest that if you're starting from scratch, you're going to want to talk with at least two maybe a few more advisors just to get a sense of, uh, you need to have a comfort level. Again, this is really important to you. So um, you might wanna set up, in fact, I'll talk in a minute here about setting up uh, meetings and the type of questions you're gonna to wanna to ask in those meetings. But uh, that's typically what you're going to want to do uh, once you have got uh, the list narrowed down to one or two. I'm gonna share with you a few uh, sources online that I feel um, 
offer very good uh, places that you want to go to. The first one is is called the Canadian Securities Administrators, and this is uh, known as the CSA. On their website, I, I find that they have a very good resource for investors, and they have a they have a tab called Investor Tools. And within there, they have subcategories and, and, you know, working with advisors, they give you information on how to choose an advisor, some considerations that you're going to want to um, keep in mind in this relationship. You can check the registration of advisors. They also have some very helpful PDF documents, uh, you know, questions you might want to ask in an in, in a, uh, interview with an, a potential advisor. Um, so I would really strongly recommend that you um, look at that as one of your starting resources. Um, also, uh, PMAC or the Portfolio Management Association of Canada has a website if you're specifically looking for a portfolio manager. As I touched on earlier, portfolio managers, uh, more likely you're just going to uh, assign them discretionary power. If you are if you have a very busy life, if you're, you're out of town a lot, that's probably a suitable route to look for there. This can give you a good starting point for where uh, an advisor or a man portfolio manager you could find there. And uh, lastly, on this category here, um, the IROC site I, I mentioned earlier, you can check the registration of an advisor to see what you know how they're licensed and what products they're um, able to uh, to use uh, for you, what qualifications advisors need, so a little bit more depth as to uh, what each of these categories means. And again, it gives you sort of a list of questions that you might ask uh, people uh, that you that you uh, are considering working with. There's also ways that you can just search for advisors on your area on a few other websites. The first one I'm going to point out here is a site. It's, it's Advocus is the name of the group. It's the Financial Advisors Association of Canada. And they have a filter where you can go through and look for advisors depending on your geographical location or depending on their, their expertise. FP Canada is another very good resource for learning more about this. Um, and lastly, the Institute of Advanced Financial Planners is another uh, site that you can go to and you know, get more information on what you might be looking for in, uh, um, at, from an advisor. And also, um, you can, I think you can go through and filter it and look for specific names on there as well. These are just a few. This isn't all-encompassing. Um, you can just Google you know, Investment Advisor Toronto, and I'm sure you can find a lot of um, ads. I'm trying to get here so you strip through past the ads because they're going to obviously come to the top. These are some of the industry sites that will obviously promote their own members. It'll give you a lot of depth in, um, in, in uh, a starting point for that, that search as well. A question that I hear and an answer I hear often uh, to the question, should you work with a friend? Should you work with a family member? The, the default answer is often just no. I mean, don't go there because uh, it, your money's important, your, your relationships are important. And if there's a, a problem develops that um, then there might be um, some friction that builds up and you don't want to sacrifice that friendship or certainly that relationship with a family member uh, just to manage your portfolio. I don't know. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it depends on both individuals, the advisor and the and the um, the family member or the friend. I know certainly when I started my career, that's where most advisors start their career. They, you know, they, their their family invests with them and their friends invest with them, and and um, that's kind of the how you get the snowball rolling. And uh, I worked for twenty years plus with family members and with very close friends. Um, who remained both, you know, that my friends remained friends over all those years. So I had a good experience also working with many, uh, many clients who became friends over that time period. It's kind of a tough one. I do see there's a potential for danger there, but I wouldn't rule out if you have a, an, a uh, if you have a contact who is related to you or a good friend who is capable in their field, I wouldn't automatically say no, 
just because of that criteria, but it's something you do want to give um, consideration to. Once you decide that you, uh, once you've narrowed down that list as to who you might work with, there's there, there are questions that you should ask. Now, whether you ask them explicitly, um, you know, you, I've had potential clients walk into my office with a list. Here's 27 questions I'm going to ask you. And they kind of go through one-on-one. If you're more of a conversationalist, you, you might want to be aware of these questions and through the conversation, if they're answered, you know, that might be sufficient for you as well. But you should definitely go into this search with a, a goal, with these specific questions um, that you're looking for uh, answers to um, in mind. The first one I'm going to start off with, with, I think, is a real tough one. And uh, I guess the, you know, the question you want to ask an advisor is, you know, what's your experience or how much experience do you have? And, you know, starting, uh, if, if the person says, well, gee, it's my second day on the job, probably you're not going to have a lot of faith in, in their experience. And that's understandable. Um, I also, um, I wouldn't, well... It's a tough one for me because I think back to my early days where I had zero experience and people had faith in me and allowed me to, you know, they, they were with me as I, as I developed my skills and worked through my career. So if you're a younger investor and you have, say, a younger friend who's getting into the industry, that might be a scenario where you're saying, I'm willing to work with this younger person and, um, you know, ride it out with them. But there will be some ups and downs and, and hopefully these people will learn and gain experience as they go along. Um, if you are... You just sold your business for a few million dollars and you're looking for someone to help you manage that. And, and you know, as I said earlier, getting involved in estate planning and issues like that. Uh, I would say then you're going to want to look for someone with more experience. Um, it, it's a tough one. Uh, maybe something you can look at if you're looking for someone with uh, less experience is if they work as part of a team. So, you know, I think of when Brandon started working with me, he had zero experience um, as an advisor when he started and, you know, we worked as a team. And uh, so there's, you know, he, he could, he could uh, have conversations with people, but ultimately the decisions on what we did uh, came down to me uh, initially. And so that's a, a nice arrangement there where you can, I think, cut a little bit of slack to a, to a potential uh, younger advisor. Um, I, I would say if you find a, you know, a young person who is an amazing person and, you know, willing to learn, smart, on the ball, uh, that's probably better than, a, than an older or an experienced advisor who, you know, maybe got, has gotten tired of what they're doing and, and isn't going to give you the attention that you deserve. Just one thing to factor in. Uh, you're going to want to ask what type of license, what type of registration you have, uh, depending on what your needs are. That's obviously going to be important if they can actually provide the services that you need. Uh, I, I touched earlier on accreditations. Um, are you a, a certified financial planner? Um, if you are going to be having financial planning needs, that's something you want to touch on, uh, to, you want to cover off. Um, do you work um, as part of a team or do you uh, work by yourself? Uh, pros and cons to each. Uh, that's something you could ask and you probably should ask. If you work as part of a team, a good question to ask is, um, you know, if, if I bring my portfolio to you, are you the one managing it or um, does a, perhaps a junior manage it? It's very common in the industry for uh, more mature advisors who have a team working uh, with them. You know, they, they, they may, the, the client or the potential client may be referred to you, uh, but most of the work is going to be done uh, by a junior advisor. Um, there's pros and cons to each of that, but uh, it's something that you, it's legitimate that you ask that, that, uh, that question. Another thing that comes to mind and uh, I, I, I heard often with potential clients was, um, what type of investments do you use? Or can you give me some examples of investments? And I would typically have, a, you know, what I call a model portfolio. 
you know, in a financial planning practice or an investment advisory practice, you're going to see a lot of crossover of certain investments. I mean, maybe I like Royal Bank. Most of my clients are probably going to own Royal Bank. It's not going to be a different bank for every client. That probably doesn't make sense. Um, but um, if you have that list or if you want, if, you're, if, the, if the advisor has that list, that's a good thing to ask. And it'll give you a sense of um, what type of a portfolio that person uh, manages. And, uh, you know, you can see right off the bat, you know, whether these are the types of companies that you're interested in investing uh, in. The size of the business or more specifically, you could ask um, how many clients do you work with? Um, it can be an issue in some practices where if you're working with hundreds and hundreds of clients as a one-man shop, I mean, the, the realistic question is how much attention are you actually going to be able to give to me? Uh, you know, how long is it going to take to return a call if you have you know, 20 calls lined up? That's a legitimate uh, question that you could ask. This is a question that probably should have been asked earlier, but do you have a minimum investment? Uh, a lot of advisors nowadays have a minimum investment. Uh, not all, but many. And before you even get to this point, uh, that's uh, that's a, a question that's you know you probably should ask to make sure that you know if they have a million dollar uh, minimum investment uh, to take on new clients and and you have less than that then uh, probably you know you're wasting everybody's time by being in there but most importantly yours uh, so that would be a question to ask ahead of time. You can ask, uh, is there a typical type of client that you work with? I, I'm a little bit ambiguous or uh, ambivalent on this one because most advisors work with a broad spectrum of clients, some focused on niches, um, and uh, that's perfectly fine too. But most uh, deal with you know individuals, business owners, old, young, uh, quite a variety. So uh, it's, it's okay to ask that question. Um, I'm not sure really uh, the answer in most cases will be I work with all, a, a, a variety, but it's a good question to ask. Um, are you, uh, the next question I would say is, are you focused on certain products and services? So uh, in other words, can you, uh, do you do stock option trading if that's something I'm interested in? Do you have other licenses? So how much work do you do on the insurance side of things um, if I'm looking to be an, an investor? Is it you know mostly focused on insurance and yeah, I'll fix you up for investments or, or the other way around? So a good question to ask there and get a sense. Um, do you have a contact network is very commonly asked and I think very important. It's often that investment advisors work with other, uh, with their clients, other professionals such as accountants and lawyers. Um, I like it when there's a clear flow of information back and forth. If that's the case, um, then you are already going to have a relationship in place, say with an accountant that you want to connect with your new investment advisor. Maybe you don't. And so in most cases, an investment advisor will be able to um, steer you in the right direction if you have other needs for estate planning and, and legal uh, needs, that type of thing. So it's a question you could ask there if that's important to you. Perhaps a difficult question to answer, but uh, important is, um, are you currently under investigation for any, uh, you know, any bad things that you may have done? It's kind of an awkward question and the answer is probably going to be no, but in cases where uh, advisors do things that are maybe a little bit off board, the regulators we talked about earlier will place uh, restrictions or terms or conditions on the way they can, uh, they can manage. A very common one is uh, what's called close supervision. In other words, you we're, you can do what you do, but we're going to have a, a person assigned to you who's going to be you know monitoring all your trades, etc. Um, and so it, it's a fair question to ask, um, and, and I would hope that you'd get a straightforward answer on that. And I, I hope the answer is to most. No, there's no conditions on how I you know the work I can do for you. But uh, in this day and age, uh, maybe not a bad question to ask. The big question, of course, um, how are you paid? We're going to talk in just a couple of minutes here about the different. Uh, 
payment uh, scenarios or structures, uh, but uh, knowing how uh, a how the advisor is paid and how much they're they're going to be paid or how much you're going to be paying them, more specifically, um, is very important. We'll get to that in just a minute, more uh, in more detail. Uh, what type of communication can I expect from you? This I think is really really important, and this comes down to things like um, how often would we be meeting? You know, either online, by telephone, in person. Um, most advisors, I think, kind of structure the meeting um, according to the client's needs, but um, that's important, especially early in a relationship. I found that more frequent communication was very important as the as the client developed a comfort level with what you were doing. Um, what is the flow of information? In other words, um, if I'm making uh, trades on your account, or if you're making trades on my account, um, how am I gonna know about that? Are you? Am I gonna get an email? Am I gonna get a call? Am I gonna get a trade confirmation in the mail? Or am I gonna get nothing? Those are all things that you're going to want to be aware of. So uh, really driving towards the disclosure and the full information that uh, you're gonna need to ultimately get that comfort level that this person is, uh, is acting in your best interest. A couple of last things I'll talk about is uh, you wanna get things in writing. So if, you know, it's one thing to sit in an office with someone and hear a whole lot of promises, but um, have things in writing. And there's mandatory now, in most cases, when you start a relationship with an advisor, there are regulatory information pieces that they need to provide you with um, that are put out, you know, by IROC or by the, by the dealership itself to make sure that there's full disclosure. But those documents can be pamphlets with pages and pages of fine print. Um, the two main things I would look for is, um, do you have an engagement letter, which basically will outline the expectations and the services or in the same vein, an investment policy statement. If you're going to be investing on my behalf, um, do are you going to go to the step of putting that, that process down in writing so that we all are on the same page, uh, literally and figuratively, and that's really important. So I think um, to summarize everything, you'd want to have quite a bit of this stuff in, in writing at the end of the day before you decide to, uh, to move along. Lastly, I'm going to talk for a minute on this whole conversation of what questions you're asking. You're asking these questions for a couple of reasons. One is just straight for information, but more importantly, um, when you're having this discussion with a potential advisor, spend the time gauging uh, their not only their answers, but also their, their demeanor, their reaction. Do they seem engaged? And this might seem like a no-brainer, but... Uh, you know, I, I am aware of some advisors over the years who uh, are, you know, maybe a little bit high on themselves or conceited and figure they know it all. And so if the person you're, you're uh, talking with doesn't seem to be listening, it's just blah, 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 here's what you should do. Um, if they're maybe demeaning to the level that you're at, um, obviously that's a red flag. Are they actually listening to you? Are they making eye contact or do you, eye contact or do you feel they're just kind of looking past you? Uh, you really need to get a sense that they care about you, exclusive of all their other other clients that they may be working with, um, to get to build that rapport. Um, there's sort of this old saying that uh, you know the the God gave us two ears and one mouth, so you know they should be listening twice as much as as they're talking. Clearly, they want to answer your questions, but. In that first meeting, the majority of the information flow should be coming from the client. I truly believe that because uh, that's how the advisor is going to be able to assess, be A, can I help this person? And B, uh, should I help this person? A few red flags. Um, these are probably simple and self-explanatory, but if the advisor is bragging a ton, you know, uh, I'm the best, I did this, and I have these clients, and I, if they're name dropping, well, this famous person works with me, first of all, um, they shouldn't be telling you that because that's confidential information. But if, if all they're doing is talking about how good they are, that's uh, a real red flag. 
if they focus on short-term investment returns, I can just imagine right now a lot of these conversations with advisors who um, are going to say, gee, uh, since March of last year, you know, look at the returns I've achieved for, for my clients and everybody's achieved returns over the last 15, 16 months or so. Um, so if they're focused on the short-term uh, returns, I would say that's a red flag because hopefully a relationship like this is going to be long-term in nature. So you're going to have good months and you're going to have uh, bad months and good years and bad years. And so they're all form, uh, part of that, um, the bigger puzzle. So don't let uh, the short-term discussion steer the conversation. Don't get excited by these strong returns because I, you know, I've always felt if you build, if you start a relationship based on um, a return, then you know th that can turn real quickly as well. You need to the relationship should be much deeper than that. Lastly, I'll say, uh, are they dismissive? Um, you know, I, I kind of talked in uh, this earlier. If they if they just are of the opinion that I'm the professional here, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me what you what you um, tell me what you want to say, but I, I know it all. I would avoid them at all costs. There's lots of choices out there, and. Uh, you know, just don't feel obliged to to go with someone if you don't have that comfort level. That's I, I can't uh, emphasize how critical that relationship part of this uh, of this choice really is, especially over time. Now I'm going to move on to um, how uh, how much um, you you know how do you pay an advisor uh, and how much you're going to pay an advisor. And there's really there's four sort of main ways that you would end up paying for the services of an advisor. The first one I'm just gonna call is a fee only. So there's two sort of subcategories to this. There are advisors who work, um, and in fact, pretty much everybody I knew in the industry, myself included, worked on a, uh, a flat fee based on the size of your account. So um, AUM is the term we use in the industry, assets under management. So the, 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 um, the fee that you pay will be a percentage of the value of your account. So if your account goes up, the percentage will stay the same, but the raw dollar, of course, will um, will go up. If your account value drops, even if it's the same percentage, of course, the actual dollar amount you're going to pay um, is lower. I, I've always felt that there's a good alignment of interest there. There's a there's a strong interest for the advisor to avoid big losses and to grow the accounts. Uh, that's just one way. Uh, uh, it's a very common way of, of being paid. The other fee only is there, there are uh, advisors, there are planners who work uh, strictly on an hourly fee. So typically these people aren't licensed to actually provide or to, to sell products to you or to provide actual management of a portfolio, but they will give you um, guidance and they will create financial plans and, and you can uh, pay them either uh, an, an hourly fee or you can uh, pay a flat fee, which we'll get into some more specifics in a moment here as well. So the, there's the fee only category. There are some advisors who work on commissions. So if you buy a product from them, they're going to earn uh, some money by doing that. There are some advisors who work on a salary basis. You're going to typically see this um, in the, the, the big banks, for example, where the advisors will work in a branch and be paid an actual salary. And more commonly, there's going to be a combination of these different types of of uh, financial arrangements or payment arrangements. So I want to talk now more specifically about each of those. If we if we start with a fee only, let's start with what I think is sort of the most common, which is um, the uh, percentage of the value of your account. When you have an investment account and you have an advisor looking after it, you can expect to, to pay, it's quite a range here I'll start with, but then try and narrow it down, anywhere from half a percent of the value of your account up to 2.5% or even more in some cases, but let's set that range at half a percent up to 2.5. Um, there's uh, uh, you know, gee, I'll take the half a percent. 
there's some uh, some qualifications, I guess you would say, uh, that will dictate or determine what that amount will be. Um, in a recent Money Sense um, uh, article I read, it kind of gave some some ranges or some bands. And for example, uh, if your account is under a million dollars in value, you could expect to pay somewhere in the range of one and a half to two and a half percent. Now, this will depend on um, the the types of products that you're using to fulfill your investing needs. So, under a million dollars. Rough range, one and a half to two and a half percent. If your investment account uh, is has a market value of over a million, that number will lower. The higher the account, typically you're going to see a lower uh, value, uh, somewhere in the range of one to one and a half million dollars. So you'll you'll see those numbers come down as the account um, increases. If your account is over a million and a half, it's very common that you would see, uh, let's say, one percent. That would be a, a very common number if your account is say one and a half million or two million dollars. And certainly um, anything above that, I would just call as negotiable. It's not uncommon that you're going to see uh, larger accounts, say four or five, 10 million, that you would be paying uh, you know, 0.65 or 0.75% or 0.85%. Depends on um, other factors as well. But if you are a higher net worth individual, you're gonna to expect to pay a lower fee. Um, one thing to consider, if you're using ETFs, so exchange-traded funds in your portfolio, we haven't talked about that here today, but it, uh, it, it's a certain type of product that a lot of advisors use for portfolios, they come with their own fee. So just a quick example, if you are owning an exchange-traded fund that has a management fee of 0.10, so 10 basis points, and your, uh, your management fee that you're paying the advisor is 1%, then you would add those together so you would be paying 1.1%. So it's important to say that the, the direct fee that you're paying for your account management, but then any products that have a management fee on top of those, you would add those to that account to get the, um, to get the bottom line. How do you pay these fees? Well, in most cases, uh, if you're working with an advisor who's pay, charging you a fee based on the AUM, you're paying uh, directly out of your account. So when at the end of every month, uh, the fees are charged annually, uh, or sorry, the fees are calculated annually. So let's say one and a half percent annually, that's divided by 12. And typically every month, you're going to have that fee come out of your account directly. Um, or a lot of accounts are also set up to pay on a quarterly basis. So um, you can do the math on, on, on that. The bottom line is you don't write a check. Actually, you can in some cases. Some cases you can set up a pre-authorized payment to come off of a credit card. In most cases that I'm aware of, that money just comes out of the cash portion of your portfolio and pays the fees. But um, yeah, there are some different ways that you can pay that, but it comes directly from you um, in one way or another, either out of your account or say a, a form of payment that you use to pay. Um, if you have a, if you're working with an, a, an advisor who gets, who charges an hourly fee, as I touched on, these are people who don't um, sell products directly or don't uh, directly manage the portfolio for you. You can expect to pay in a range uh, of 200 to $500 an hour. Some may be lower, some may be higher. But if you're looking at just, I want to get started, I, for example, I'm a do-it-myself investor. I want to manage the actual portfolio, but I do want some direction on, you know, how, how do I prepare for retirement? Then you can pay an individual, pay them on an hourly basis, and then um, you will uh, manage the portfolio yourself. So looking in that two to five hundred dollar range, uh, range uh, for the services. If you just go in and say, I want a full fledged financial plan, a range that you would expect to have that done. And a lot of a, a lot of firms will just say, we're going to charge you a flat fee, and then they will either do it quicker or it'll take them longer. That's on them. Uh, you would expect to pay somewhere between fifteen hundred and five thousand dollars for a for a fee. 
Again, these are simply guidelines, depending on what your needs are. Um, you, they, it may be more than that if you have very complicated needs, but you can use that as a starting point and most uh, fees, most plans would come in somewhere uh, along those lines. Now there is a category, I talked earlier about CFP or Certified Financial Planner and I suggested that the person you're working with should have those qualifications or those accreditations. There is a, uh, a new category, a new accreditation that was introduced into the arena last, last, uh, last year, 2020, and it's called Qualified Associate Financial Planner. And this is um, a designation that um, a person who's working uh, or is on their way to becoming a CFP um, has not quite fulfilled those requirements yet. They can be um, they can be qualified, and they work on a lot of teams. And generally, you would expect that the hourly fee that you're paying them uh, would be lower. So, if you happen to work with a group that has these qualified associate financial planners uh, uh, in in the fold, they may be assigned to do a lot of the the sort of the groundwork on your on your case. And uh, if you have less complex needs, for example, and then you would expect to pay a lower fee. These fees are paid directly by you. So whether you write a check or it goes on your credit card, they do the work, they charge you because you have no products with them. There's nowhere else for them to take the money from uh, that comes directly from you. The next category is commissions. And this was, uh, you know, back in the day, this was sort of the way that most um, most portfolios were managed. But um, whether you're uh, buying mutual funds or whether you're buying stocks directly, uh, there are. If you work on a transaction-based account, your advisor may recommend that you buy shares of, um, you know, a, a Toronto Dominion Bank. And when you buy those shares, you're going to pay a commission. Uh, that number needs to be disclosed to you. Um, obviously, today uh, the fees uh, from competitive reasons have come down dramatically from where they were not that long ago. So you can get some very reasonable uh, uh, amounts of commission that you would pay. But that's a common uh, way that you would pay uh, if you have an account. And whether you're managing that yourself or whether you're working with an advisor, commissions are a way there. Uh, with mutual funds, uh, mutual funds are sold um, on what's called a front-end basis, which means when you invest, say, $100, there's a fee that is charged, typically 1% or 2%, but it could be could be higher um, or lower. Some investment advisors will charge you zero, actually, and I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, but they... Um, they may charge you, say, a 1% fee, which means if you invest $100, $99 of that will actually get invested. And the $1, uh, the 1%, goes to pay the advisor. Trailer or, uh, Mutual funds also have what are called trailer fees or service fees or trailing commissions. There's a few different terms that are used. What it means is uh, when you invest your money with that advisor and if you own a mutual fund, the mutual fund company pays that advisor a rate on an ongoing basis. And it's typically anywhere from half a percent to a percent of the value of your account. It's similar to having uh, the structure we talked about earlier, the fee-based structure, where it's based on your uh, the assets under management, but there's two components. So I talked earlier about sort of a combination, and th- these um, these uh, the mutual funds will have the, the combination of the, uh, the, man- uh, the uh, commission upfront and also these ongoing management fees. These are a little bit different. The management fees you don't really see unless you look really hard. You don't um, you don't pay them uh, from a, a bank account or from a credit card. These are what are called embedded in the actual product. So anytime you own a mutual fund, the fees are calculated on an annual basis, but they're broken down on a monthly basis and they're charged um, from your account directly. So um, if the fund, for example, earns 10% in one year and the fee is 2%, you're going to get 8% in your portfolio. Um, conversely, if the let's say the portfolio has a bad year and loses 
10% in value uh, on the uh, mutual fund. Well, your accounts will go down by 12% because you're going to take the 10% from the fund itself. The fees are going to be on top of that. You're not going to see those. There is disclosure that you can see by going to the websites and, and looking that way. And uh, I'll talk just in a second here about uh, the disclosure that the uh, dealers are required to give to you. But that's something to be aware of. I'm always surprised that um, people are not aware that if they own mutual funds, they pay fees, but something you need to be aware of and they can be substantial fees. Um, I talked about um, working on salary. Most of the time when you're gonna see a salaried employee, most of those are gonna be bank employees who will be, um, will be paid a salary to, to look after the bank's clients. And you may see that also in, in larger firms where um, there may be a support team that, that, um, that helps the, the lead advisors. They may be on a salary as well. Uh, but it's less the case, uh, but that's something that is another way that uh, employees are going to be paid. Now, you're not going to pay their salaries directly, obviously, but that's how advisors are paid within these institutions. Um, one thing uh, that you might want to keep on top of mind, and I know this is always a controversial issue, uh, I'm going to just use the banks as an example here right now. If you're working with the banks, um, there is always this potential conflict of interest and I know that the people who work in the banks are going to refute this and, and, and uh, that's fine. Um, there's, there is a potential of conflict of interest where um, the, the um, advisors will recommend uh, what are called proprietary products. So if you go to Bank X, they're going to uh, recommend the mutual funds that Bank X has. Um, and uh, they're probably as good as any other mutual fund, but obviously um, they want to keep the, the ongoing fees um, in-house. So if you're working with a, uh, a salaried employee, just be aware with the recommendations. And I've experienced this firsthand over the years where you want to make sure that they're always acting in your best interests and not um, in the, you know, the best interests of the, of the financial institution itself. About five years ago, uh, it's been a long, long-term problem that investors didn't know how much they were paying and couldn't find out how much they were paying. About five years ago, I think it was 2016 where the re legislation came into effect and it may have been first implemented in 2017. Uh, I might be off a year or so there. Bottom line is that um, there's been a sort of a standardized reporting system that all of the, the dealerships have to use now. So when you get your year-end statement from, a, from your investment dealer, from your bank, from your, on your investment account, there's a special area now where they have to disclose, I think it's called a statement of fees, and they have to disclose throughout the year how many fees you paid. So whether this is trading commissions, whether it's management fees that you paid to, to the bank to have the money managed on your behalf, um, it's um, that's available there. And uh, I know, and surprisingly to me, a lot of investors still don't even a, know it's there or don't look at it. Um, and it's, it, it's still a little bit, can be difficult to, um, to interpret these statements. But if that's something that's really important to you, and I think that it probably should be, that's a resource that you can go to. And if you don't understand what it says, talk with your advisor. I mean, most advisors, all advisors should be very willing to go through item by item to make sure you're aware of the fees that you're paying for your services. Um, if not, well, that's a red flag. Um, you should be able to walk out or, or leave a conversation like that with a very clear understanding of how much you're paying. And then if you forget sometime later and you need to review it a year later, that's perfectly fine as well. But just be aware of that. It, it's, it's a very big part. A quick note on the, the topic of fees. Um, a, a lot of people um, will kind of think that a higher fee means better returns. And I don't think there's really a correlation be be between that. I, I don't think there's any studies that show if you pay more in fee, 
um, you're going to make more money over term. Uh, there's other you know contrary studies that say the more you pay, the, the more fees you pay, the less uh, money you're going to have at the end of the day because those fee those fees eat up the returns. There's a very strong argu argument to be made that way. Um, be aware of your fees. Make sure you're not paying fees that are way outside of the band. But um, get good, competent uh, support, advice, and counsel first. That's probably the most important thing. And then as long as the fees that you're paying are within that reasonable range, I think you're going to be um, just, just fine. To wrap up the video, if you're going to work with an advisor, I think uh, a couple of key things. You need to have a relationship that is comfortable and mutually beneficial. The advisor clearly needs to make a living. That's why this is their business. That's what they do. They're entitled to charge a reasonable fee for their work. But it has to be uh, something that you benefit from and the advisor uh, benefits from as well. You need to feel confident. This is really critical, I believe. Confident that when you're having a discussion, if there's information that you need, you can understand uh, what the advisor is saying. I he I've heard over and over and over throughout the years that some advisors talk in mumbo jumbo or industry terms and you know clients will walk out of a meeting and they um, you know they just don't have a clue what was said really and that's not a healthy relationship i think in a case like this you should know um, the, the advisor should have the ability to take what might be a complicated scenario and distill it down into something that works in language that you uh, can understand on that understanding note the advisor really needs to understand you if um, if they don't pay attention to you if they're not really um, trying hard and digging deep uh, to understand your scenario and who you are, uh, that's, uh, that's not a good recipe. Uh, I think that they really need to care and understand about who you are as a person, what your goals are, and work in that direction. Um, lastly, um, yeah, do check on what the person's qualifications are, make sure that they're trustworthy, and um, you can get that from a variety of, uh, of means, as I explained earlier, that is important. Um, qualifications aren't the be all and end all, I think as a starting point, um, things like experience and qualifications and is this person trustworthy um, is, will get you a long way. Uh, considering uh, the length of some of these relationships, how long they're going to be, uh, these are steps you should take at the beginning to, to uh, get off on the right foot uh, as you start down that path. Um, I truly hope that this discussion has been beneficial for you. It's probably been much longer than I anticipated it would be, but I've you know had some bullet points I wanted to talk about and then kind of went off um, to go into a little bit more depth on some of these points. I, I hope that you stuck with us and, and uh, this, this um, information will, will help you um, in your quest to uh, come, up, uh, come up with a good advisor to help you down the, your financial journey. Uh, I will just end off the video talking uh, or bringing your attention to uh, the first link down below is our Investing Academy. And um, if you are looking to, uh, to do it yourself, you know, if, you've, if you're not looking for an advisor or even more importantly, perhaps, if you do work with an advisor and you're looking just to um, increase your depth of knowledge so that when you're having these meetings with your advisor, you can understand the conversation better or maybe there's information that you can bring to the table, questions that the advisor will be able to help you out with. Um, I'd urge you to, uh, to just check out our Investing Academy and we have a, a, obviously some training courses. We also have a number of tools that can help you manage your investment portfolio. I'm gonna wrap up this video and as always, I will just conclude by thanking you so much for watching the video. If you did like the material, uh, appreciate a thumbs up on the video. If uh, you know of someone who may be able to benefit uh, from, from this information, feel free to pass the video on. That would be appreciated and just sort of spread the word. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in the next video.